PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to PTJ's The Bottom Line for September 2010. I'm Donovan Stutel, along with Dave Corvoisier. Bottom lines translate the findings of selected research articles for clinical practice. Bottom lines are not intended to substitute for a critical reading of the original articles. These bottom lines were written by the authors of their respective articles. Our first bottom line summarizes Effectiveness of Interferential Current Therapy in the Management of Musculoskeletal Pain, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis by Jorge Fuentes, Dr. Susan Armijo-Olivo, Dr. David McGee, and Dr. Douglas Gross. First, what do we already know about this topic? Despite the widespread use of interferential current, information about its clinical effectiveness is limited and controversial. The pain-reducing effect of interferential current when applied alone or as part of a multimodal treatment plan to treat musculoskeletal pain has not been determined. What new information does this study offer? The application of interferential current as part of a multimodal treatment plan appears to produce a modest pain-relieving effect in a broad spectrum of acute and chronic musculoskeletal conditions when compared with no treatment or placebo. In addition, the potential long-term effects of interferential current versus placebo observed at three-month follow-up are of interest. Interferential current alone was not significantly better than placebo and the following interventions, manual therapy, traction, or massage. However, conclusive statements regarding the analgesic efficacy of interferential current cannot be made due to heterogeneity across the included studies and the methodological limitations identified in these studies. If you're a patient, what might these findings mean for you? When seeking pain treatment, interferential current could be potentially effective in reducing musculoskeletal pain. However, its application should be included as part of a multimodal treatment plan. Our next bottom line summarizes examination of a clinical prediction rule to identify patients with neck pain likely to benefit from thoracic spine thrust manipulation and a general cervical range of motion exercise. Multi-center randomized clinical trial by Dr. Joshua Cleland, Dr. Paul Mintkin, Dr. Kristen Carpenter, Dr. Julie Fritz, Dr. Paul Glenn, Dr. Julie Whitman, and Dr. John Childs. What do we already know about this topic? Thoracic spine manipulation appears to be beneficial in the short term for reducing pain and improving function in patients with mechanical neck pain. The authors have attempted to identify a subgroup of patients with neck pain most likely to benefit from thoracic spine manipulation. What new information does this study offer? The results suggest that regardless of the patient's clinical presentation, those who received thoracic spine manipulation in addition to exercise had superior outcomes to those who received exercise only. This suggests that patients with mechanical neck pain and no contraindications to manual therapy may benefit from thoracic spine manipulation. If you're a patient, what might these findings mean for you? If you are experiencing neck pain, thoracic spine manipulation provided by a physical therapist may help in decreasing your level of disability. Our next bottom line summarizes family priorities for activity and participation of children and youth with cerebral palsy 
by Dr. Lisa Shirello, Dr. Robert Polisano, Dr. Jill Maggs, Dr. Margot Orlin, Dr. Nihad Al-Mazri, Dr. Lin Ju Kang, and Hui Ju Chang. What do we already know about this topic? Parents of young children with cerebral palsy have identified the following as priorities for their children's rehabilitation programs. Self-care, mobility, standing or walking, and play. What new information does this study offer? Parents' priorities for activity and participation differ based on the age and gross motor function level of the child. Priorities for daily activities, particularly self-care, were identified more often than productivity or leisure for children of all ages. Parents of school-aged children had more priorities for productivity than parents of younger children. Parents of children who were able to walk without limitations had a similar amount of priorities for daily activities, productivity, and leisure. If you're a patient, what might these findings mean for you? It is important for parents and children to share their priorities with their therapist and advocate for support and resources for daily activities. Physical therapists are encouraged to explore children's interests in participation in home, school, and community life. Our next bottom line summarizes effects of various treadmill interventions on the development of joint kinematics in infants with Down syndrome by Dr. Jian Hua Wu, Dr. Julia Luper, Dr. Dale Ulrich, and Dr. Rosa Angulo Barroso. What do we already know about this topic? A higher intensity, individualized treadmill training protocol allows infants with Down syndrome to walk independently earlier and to be better able to negotiate an obstacle when compared with a lower-intensity, generalized training protocol. However, it is unknown whether the two protocols lead to the development of different joint kinematic patterns. What new information does this study offer? During a one-year gait follow-up, the higher-intensity, individualized treadmill training protocol led to a more accelerated development of joint kinematics and elicited adult-like timing of peak ankle plantar flexion in infants with Down syndrome, which helped them to better utilize mechanical energy transfer during walking. If you're the patient or caregiver of a patient, what might these findings mean for you? Treadmill intervention, in particular the higher-intensity, individualized training protocol, is recommended for implementation with infants with Down syndrome to advance their walking onset and promote motor development. The intervention should start when infants with Down syndrome are about to sit alone and should continue until they achieve independent walking. Our next bottom line summarizes sarcopenia, cardiopulmonary fitness, and physical disability in community-dwelling elderly people by Dr. Minghui Xian, Dr. Xu Ko Kuo, and Dr. Ying Tai Wu. What do we already know about this topic? Sarcopenia is the term used to describe age-related decline in skeletal muscle mass and function. Many epidemiological studies have linked sarcopenia to the onset of fragility and disability in elderly people. What new information does this study offer? Sarcopenia was associated with physical disability in elderly men in Taiwan. To a large extent, the association between sarcopenia and physical disability depended on the level of cardiopulmonary fitness. 
If you're a patient, what might these findings mean for you? Maintaining good cardiopulmonary fitness may help reduce long-term physical disability for elderly people with sarcopenia. Our next bottom line summarizes quantifying self-report measures overestimation of mobility scores post-arthroplasty by Professor Paul Stratford, Professor Deborah Kennedy, Dr. Monica Malley, and Dr. Norma McIntyre. What do we already know about the topic? There is consistent evidence supporting the premise that self-report measures overestimate the ability of patients to move around after a hip or knee arthroplasty. One reason for this overestimation of function is the marked reduction in pain following arthroplasty. What new information does this study offer? Using performance measures as a standard, the current study provides estimates of systematic differences between functional tests and scores on the lower extremity functional scale and the Western Ontario and McMaster University's Osteoarthritis Index Physical Function Subscale. If you're a patient, what might these findings mean for you? Physical therapists may use both functional tasks and questionnaires to evaluate your function. Both provide useful information about your state of recovery. Our last bottom line summarizes the role of caregiver involvement in upper limb treatment in individuals with subacute stroke by Dr. Joycelyn Harris, Dr. Janice Eng, Dr. William Miller, and Dr. Andrew Dawson. What do we already know about this topic? It is known that more arm and hand exercise leads to improved upper extremity function for people with stroke. However, healthcare resources may limit the amount of therapy time available post-stroke. This study investigated whether the inclusion of family and friends in a homework-based program can improve upper limb function. What new information does this study offer? Involvement of caregivers with an upper extremity exercise program in the hospital was associated with an improvement of upper limb function in people with stroke. If you're a patient, what might these findings mean for you? Involvement of caregivers with your therapy may help you to spend more time doing recommended exercises and improve your health outcome. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. We always appreciate your feedback. You can email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626-593-7825.